Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right. This week, we are talking to the man behind one of the most enduring and unique one-hit wonders of all time. The song is pop music, and the man is Robin Scott, also known as M. Now, in the early 70s, Robin Scott started out as kind of a folky along the lines of, like, Nick Drake or something. But by the, er- the late 70s, he'd gotten more into, like, technology and production and... M really became sort of a an art project. He put out three albums under that name. The first one, L- New York, London, Paris, Munich, had this hit, the number one smash from 1979, Pop Music. It was number one everywhere. He continued over his next couple of albums to sort of pursue the, the boundaries of pop music and art, but they were less successful. And from then, he's pretty much been doing whatever he wants. The financial freedom he gained from a hit like pop music has allowed him to do pretty much whatever he wants to do ever since. Now, last year, he put out his first album in eons called Emotional DNA. And it's really great. It's a total return to just straightforward pop songs in the same similar vein, probably, as pop music. More like pop music than all the other music he's worked on. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you check out Emotional DNA. And now you know something about the man behind pop music. So anyway, uh, Robin called me from his home in London. You're somebody, as you remember, I've been trying to make this happen for a year or two. And so I'm really glad. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I think we first corresponded uh, before Emotional DNA came out. And then when that okay. came out, I thought, well, that's a good reason to talk. And it, here we are finally almost a year later. So anyway, okay. I'm glad we're finally doing this. But good timing. <laughs> yes. But uh, let's start with the most obvious question that you probably get all the time. And then we can move past mm-hmm. that. Tell us about the creation of pop music, the song. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what? How would you like me to sort of kind of... Uh... What well, would you like a, to know what that, you don't already know? That's a good, that's a, that is a very good follow-up question, Robin. The reason I ask that is because that song seemed to sort of nail a particular moment in music, in uh, pop music, as the song says, so yes. completely that that's what allowed it to sort of, you know, take over the world at that time. I think I've read enough about you and the creation of that song to know that I think you felt like you, like that song was meant to sort of uh, define a moment or capitalize on a, on some um, uh, progress that you were seeing. I think Heaven Seventeen, kind of back in the early days, were sort of doing something similar. This marriage of music with technology, with corporations, with automation, robots and suits. These people, these things, all coming together to form a new culture in the eighties. Is that what you were seeing as you were creating this song? I think, yeah, that was um, certainly uh, the backdrop for um, the the creative um, process of actually, as it were, realizing that pivotal moment, which was for me, I was thinking that we're kind of sort of in that sort of territory of 25 years of um, down the line pop music. You think of it sort of starting in the 50s, um, 59 or, or thereabouts. Um, it was looking like a moment to sort of kind of take stock. And I suppose from my own particular perspective, I was kind of reflecting on what I had experienced as, as a listener, as a fan or as a, 
you know, somebody growing up through that period. And I was trying to condense all that into a moment, into a song. And um, that's basically, uh, that was the task. And mm. it was it was quite difficult to find a way to present that in a, yeah, in a way which was, um, how can I say, going to resonate with, uh, people very easily as a pop song does mm. in its simplicity, but somehow have some depth at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of fairly, um, I suppose, yeah, familiar with how progressive things had become um, in the studio mm -hmm. and um, how electronic music was beginning to surface through whether it was Stockhausen or, you know, whether it was um, craft work or whatever. And I just saw the, I saw the dots and I sort of yeah. was looking for ways to join them all together, basically. And at the same time, pay homage to those that um, I kind of loved and revered as, mm -hmm. um, as a listener. Mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't easy. And um, there, in fact, there were three versions of that song. Oh, yeah. I felt yeah, for I felt, you know, I'd kind of sort of explored it enough and here it is. And it developed over probably, yeah, probably six months, I think. Hmm. And I was kind of in and out of the studio doing various versions before I arrived at the final version. Um, when I had the good fortune to work with somebody who was on the cutting edge of um, sequencing and electronic um kind of technology at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had him basically put together the, the the basic foundation of the track, which was a sequence. And that was, at that time, it was quite unusual. I think there may have been, you know, one or two sort of examples of it, but there were not, nothing. there was nothing in the mainstream which had that. Uh, apart right. from Georgie Moroder was, you know, with I Feel sure. Love, that was quite uh, syncopated and it had that kind of, sort of sequence. Was that song better. as impactful to you as it seems to have been to just about everybody else from your uh, generation, your time period? Are you talking about um, I the, Feel Love? Yeah, just the yeah. hearing hearing that, and does it just open your mind to what's possible in a way that hadn't been there before? Yeah, well, I think um, yeah, Georgia Moroda, he was uh, exploring... Um, ways of recording and separating the sounds in the studio uh, like no other had. I mean, he was recording sort of various instruments independently in such a way that, yeah, I think he actually, I, I don't know whether it was fact or fiction, but I understood that he was actually recording drum parts, the whole sort of kind of kit separately on different tracks. So mm -hmm. I actually explored all that too, to get the sort of kind of the clinical sort of, cleanliness a sort of germanic sort of yeah. perfection that i think that um obviously he was pioneering yeah. a lot of it was kind of hearsay and, and guessworks but uh I, I tried to sort of kind of imitate you know the sort of um how can i say that the uh the stories that i was hearing yeah i was sort of bringing okay. them to life in the actual and oh sorry go ahead so when i basically the, the final version was just, it was a, the initial electronic sort of data was just on a, on an eight track. And, um, <clears throat> that, that was the sequence material and, um, to time code 
which, you know, that wasn't kind of particularly prevalent at that time. People weren't using time code to work mm. with. Um, they were using it, the engineers were use, using it in studio to use time code to actually, uh, for mixing desks and that kind of thing but actually to sequence the music and use it as the, the metronome throughout the track, which is obviously commonplace now. In those days, it wasn't, it wasn't so prevalent. So I had mm-hmm. an 8-track recording of the initial um, electronic material, and I took that to Paris because that's where I was spending most of my time mm-hmm. at that point. And I was looking high and low for a studio that had both an eight-track playback machine and a 24-track recorder because mm. I knew I had to get it onto 24 tracks. And eventually, I found a place where I could do that. So I transferred the eight-track to the 24. Then I took that into a live studio where I started laying down the instruments separately and the vocals separately. There was no, obviously, there was no sampling. So everything had sure. to be, you know, uh, recorded separately so and I was approaching it in a very kind of uh, clinical way to, to try and achieve a, a sound which um, I felt was you know as current as one could be yeah, at the time you did that so, do you, re- do you yeah. remember when you first started um, and I don't want to get too nerdy about the song and, and I want to talk about the rest of your career too but do you remember when you first had the germ of the idea even for this song what came first was it the was it the pop, pop, pop music? Was it the guitar lick that boom, boom? Was it the beat? What, what was, what? Can, how did you construct this song from the ground up? You know. Okay, so um, when, um, yeah, when I came up with the idea, basically I was simply um, playing. I mean, it's a three chord trick, and I was just playing simply on a rhythm guitar like anybody would to to write a song. I mean mm-hmm. the the in I guess, you know, the offbeat, if you like, in the pops was that which gave it that sort of hook. Yeah. And um yeah, I think I was, you know, I kind of grew up through a sort of whole reggae thing and I was kind of sort of I liked the backbeat. I was like that with the kind of offbeats and syncopation was something which uh, really appealed to me. And the falls on the floor gave it, you know, that was something to work against. So there was the whole kind of, the whole dance um, disco thing, which yeah. um, kind of made that a a, um, a means of um, working against. And um, so, yeah, but when I wrote the song, it was just very simple. It was just mm. like, you know, like uh, sitting down like um, yeah, uh, just a, kind of a bit of a rhythm and, yeah, just kind of yeah. a rhythm and blues thing or whatever. You know, it wasn't, uh, it could have been a folk song. It doesn't really matter. It was just, sure. um, yeah, I was just kind of in okay. a very um, sort of free association kind of manner, stringing lyrics together that I felt would kind of reflect my own experience um, as um, somebody who listened to pop music per se for some time. Uh-huh. And somehow I wanted to kind of, inject into it those little snippets those little sound bites of information which i'd heard for many years just on the radio yeah and just bring it all into focus yeah and then you know finally join the dots in the studio with the sounds which i felt would be um yeah uh, yeah very different 
Okay. Because I've... the earlier versions were made, there was a funk version, there was a rhythm and blues really? version, and then there was the Jeez. final electronic version, which okay. I felt, this this is different. I haven't heard this before. So. Yeah. It's one of those songs that I feel like um, had been sort of floating in the sky, waiting for somebody to just pluck out and put on the radio. You know, it's <laughs> it's so it's so I use the term profoundly simple because and that's because it's it seems simple. But if it were that simple, everyone would have thought about it. There's thousands of songwriters out there that probably would have given anything to have. It's like after it comes out in the, and you hear it on the radio if I were a songwriter, I would think that was sitting, that was so obvious that was sitting in front of my face this whole time as just dying to be made a song. And Robin figured it out. And I didn't, you know what I mean? It well, has this simplistic yeah, quality exactly to it. Mean. But I tell you what, the, we have a magazine here in the UK, which is called music week. It's run like billboard. Mm-hmm. And each week, uh, the, the, uh, music week would list the new releases. There'd be a list of new releases. And in that same week, there was a song called Popular Music. <laughs> really? <laughs> I, I never heard that. it. I've never heard of it again. But <laughs> when I saw that, I said, shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, one well, you know how it is. You have a good idea popular. and you're sure that somebody else has the same idea somewhere else because there's too much of us <laughs> thinking about the same thing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I can totally see that. And you won. Who's ever heard of popular music again? You know, that's so great. Um, okay. Let me ask you kind of a nerdy question that maybe you've been asked a hundred times. Why did you spell it the way that you did? Was that meant to imply some sort of futurism or was it just to make it different? Were you saying something with that? Yes, I was. I was thinking that at the time, dance music the ho- in Europe, the sort of home of kind of disco music, which is where sort of Giorgio Moroder was in the picture, was in Germany. And uh, the Z was, um, or the K, I can't remember which, was uh, already there in music. Maybe it was M-U-S-I-K mm. in German. But I liked the idea of putting the Z in as well. So mm. I did, yeah, I wanted to make it feel it's, it is, we're talking music here, but it's sure. a very different kind of music. Yep. So I wanted to give it a kind of fresh, um, perfect. yeah, and identity. That's what I mean. These little seemingly simple bits of inspiration all conspired at once in your mind to create a landmark song that has lasted for generations. And they seem simple, but yet no one else thought of it but you. That's why I think but you're I'll tell kind you of amazing. Else. <laughs> yeah, please. It, the, um, at the record label at the time, the guy that um, I think he was, I don't know whether he was public relations or working radio, media, or whatever. He said, Robin, it's great, but why didn't you call it rock music? (laughs) (laughs) I said, no way. You're missing the point completely. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Oh, man. (laughs) That's funny. Okay. So I I stuck to my guns on that one. Yeah, good for you. It kind of made sense at the end of the day. (laughs) Good for you. Good for you. Um, So one thing that I like to kind of dive into a little bit on here are some of the transitions in people's careers. And you had been – and we're going to talk about the pre – the pre-pop music days, but I want to talk about the immediate, you know, aftermath of pop music. I'm guessing you go from sort of a more of an obscure artist to this, you know, worldwide phenomenon, however brief or long that period may have been. But then there's nothing, there's not another song 
that hits the zeitgeist quite like that. I mean, there's Moonlight and Muzak. There's, um, you know, there's some other things that come out, but nothing nails it like that song does. How are you feeling as this is going on? Are you think? are you getting frustrated or are you so just basking in the success that you've now, you know, accomplished? Yeah, neither of those really, because, Mm. well, for, uh, firstly, I I wasn't motivated to, I mean, at the time, okay, when I put Poppies together, I wanted to, this is, I I thought, uh, this is either going to be, you know, very successful, it's just going to be a complete damp squib, nobody's going to get it. Mm -hmm. But I was kind of, you know, I was writing it and producing it for radio stations, for DJs, for you know, those people that were in the media. So it was basically a, you know, it was a carrier wave for, um, you know, whatever was happening at the time. But that was my interest at that point. I wanted to write a very popular song. Mm. And, you know, uh, you know, I designed it carefully, you know, to, you know, be flattering to both radio and listeners ears at the same time, you know, that uh, DJs would enjoy playing or whatever. I wasn't motivated to do the same thing again. Actually, the mm. experience of, you know, trekking around the world with that tune was, yeah, it was kind of bizarre. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. say it was particularly, you know, an enjoyable experience at the time. It was, you know, the, the first, one of the, you know, the, the video for it was, you know, next to Queen's video, Bohemian Rhapsody, it was one of the first music videos. Mm-hmm. And that did a lot of the footwork, which was great. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I was still kind of going from, well, I went, you know, Australia, America, all over Europe. And at the time, you had to do lip sync. And mm-hmm. I actually deplored it. I hated it. You, you'd never, you had to sort of just sync up, you know, with yeah. this recording in the background. So the experience of promoting the track was not pleasant at all. I didn't really enjoy it. I had no appetite to do that again. But what I did have an appetite for was to be able to, follow whatever interested me musically in a way with without compromise you know mm. i didn't have to chase the market i didn't i wasn't okay record companies they loved the idea of you know hit after hit after hit or whatever and gradually i sort of was kind of i felt there was a distance between myself and the label because i wanted to really be uncompromising and do what i wanted to do i felt now i have the artistic pr- freedom because obviously I was able to command advances or whatever and choose to do what I wanted to do. So I wasn't really doing a, you know, creating any more designer babies. I wasn't kind of <laughs> specifically trying to create another a number one or whatever. Obviously it still went through the same mechanism, the same machine, the same whole chart process, the same reviewing and the exposure and all the rest of it. But there was, there's never any guarantee that anything you do is going to enjoy the same commercial experience. Uh, mm-hmm. success but that didn't bother me I just wanted to continue collaborating with interesting musicians and yeah. just exploring different um, you know musical forms and I just kind of moved away if you like from the mainstream yeah. in terms of interest now did you um, do that yourself or did the mainstream move away from you you think you moved probably, yourself uh, I mean, I chose to do what I was yeah. doing at the time and, um, you know, threw myself into it, but I wasn't kind of chasing to have another hit. Yeah. Okay. In, okay. In this, you know, in the sense, so okay. if, you know, in retrospect, I suppose if um, the, the same audience had 
persevered and, and followed what I was doing, that might have been helpful. It mm. might have been, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. You know. It is what it is. But that's why I, I kind of, I was into musical diversity. I wasn't into sure. repeating myself. I yeah. didn't really want to make another pop music. And I don't think there, you can't make another pop music. It was just, it's a kind of one-off scenario, you know? Yeah, yeah. The reason I mention that specifically is because you've always struck me as somebody who was an artist first and a musician or pop musician or a pop star or whatever, uh, probably a distant second. In fact, I almost see the song pop music and you've sort of illustrated this already as an art project. Like, let's see, That's right. let's see what we can do here. Let's, let's, um, you know, provoke or poke or prod the art world and mix it with the music world and create this thing that we can put out in the world and see what kind of reaction it gets because it's been designed to appeal to the most amount of people. Let's see if it actually does that. But then that once it does, you're on to the next art project in your mind, which in this case would have been, you know, probably the second album, Official Secrets Act. Very different, more of a sound collage, kind of ideas thrown at the wall, um, less of like a coherent pop song that you would hear on the radio. So I, I that's assume right. that's where you're coming from. You're like, yeah, this is well, all art to you, and that pop music was just one piece of art that you threw out there to see what would happen. Yeah, I started out as a, as a painter. That's mm -hmm. I mean, I still am a painter, but I mean, basically, th there is some truth in that. I think that's um, that's quite, um, yeah, it's quite, uh, you, you've highlighted the point, which is, I hadn't really kind of consciously thought about it, but I think mm. it was very much a project for me. But um, songwriting is 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 in itself. I mean, it does. You know, it's, it's a really kind of interesting, challenging form, and that's always kind of appealed to me. I like the idea of you know, in terms of the, the narrative and the how songs travel. And you know, I was initially into folk music. Yeah, I wasn't I into know. pop music. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a. Uh, uh, yeah, to be able to be in a position where suddenly I had, from the point of view, you know, financially, I had, I could make choices that I couldn't make before. I could, uh, you know, I could finance, you know, sort of going in this direction, traveling to this place, working with these people or that people or producing this person or whatever, which, um, yeah, it, it opened up doors. Mm -hmm. But, it, you know, something that is so successful that as that comes we're at a price because yeah. you know it builds up expectations in mm. certainly in commercial terms insofar as all those people that you know are, are seen to ben benefit from it i.e record companies or whatever you know 
mm-hmm. and they want to be associated with that and they want to you know um share in the revenues and mm-hmm. and if you don't keep that kind of sort of if you don't continue to play that kind of game uh you can alienate yourself very quickly so i experienced that as well and eventually yeah. you know the record company that i was working with they by the time i got to the third album they didn't get it at all mentioned here a second ago financial freedom do you now obviously i'm guessing you could probably live off pop music money probably for the rest of your life or at least the success of that at the time freed you up to continue to be the the artist the you know searching artist that you wanted to be would i have that correct do you think um i think yeah i mean it's fair to say that you know that song generated more uh, income than anything else I've ever done. Yeah, and um, it's it's um, it's been very um, very helpful in in allowing me, as I said earlier, to basically uh, explore things that I wouldn't necessarily been able to do had I not been in that position financially. Yeah, but I've never. It's never money in itself has not really been um, a real. It's never motivated me sure. to, to make money. So sure. um, I just see the opportunities that can come from having um, the, the being able to sort of to act independently, if you like. You right. know, I was able to set up my own production company. I was able to to work independent of you know the sort of corporate structures which um, many mar- uh, many artists became subjected to and uh, taken advantage of as well. Yeah. So. It's, it's a, the dynamics change very quickly when you create a situation where um, you generate um, any you know serious amount of income from some mm-hmm. kind of creative performance, whatever it is. Okay. Well, it's interesting because bo- I just oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead, please. No, I was going to say this this kind of borderline or this transition from you know art to commercialism and commercial you know art becoming a commodity whether it's you know you're working as a painter or you're working as a musician i've just finished a book um really interesting um it's patty smith it's called just mm-hmm. kids do you know this book uh, i do i've kids. never read it but it's won so many awards i've never been that big of a that's fan amazing. of patty's that's what i keep hearing i've never been that big yeah. of a fan of patty smith and so i've never Me read neither. the book but everyone no. says how amazing it is and i'm thinking what am i doing <laughs> i gotta read this book <laughs> well this is exactly it because i walked into a bookshop and uh 
and uh, I was just sort of floating around. I didn't sort of kind of want to waste time there because it was a very small shop. The guy had set his bookshop up, <laughs> and I just saw this book sitting there. So I was Patty Smith, yeah, and I never really sort of followed that artist. I've never, yeah. never really sort of engaged in who she is or, you know, the period. But actually, mm-hmm. she's in the same sort of uh, period as myself. That, yeah. And I, I knew a lot about what was going on, all her, con, you know, all the contemporaries, television or whatever in New mm-hmm. York at the time, that whole scene. Anyway, so I thought, I'm just going to give this book a go, you know, because it was like, you know, it, was, it was just like knock down price or whatever. So what have we got to lose, you know? Yeah. And I just, I couldn't put it down. It's just really? an amazing book. And just so, so oh, yeah, I mean, she's written so well um, an, an account of her relationship with Robert Maplethorpe. Mm-hmm. And it's just really engaging. She is completely, um, you know, uh, it's, it's not about her. This is the mm. great thing. It's not, she's not, um, she's very outward and very um, benevolent towards other artists. And uh, it's, it's a treat to hear that voice. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, oh, I've got to listen to wow. what she's been after anyway. She, she started out as an artist. She was yeah. drawing, you know, and, you know, basically they were a kind of uh, a duo, two artists living together and developing in you know in the sort of kind of context of fine art yeah. and that's where they were both wanting to go and that's where how they were and how they both wanted to grow together and they were collaborating with their ideas and their thoughts on their creativity and it's just a fascinating account how you know they gradually sort of broke into the the new york scene wow. um in a really sort of kind of arbitrary fashion it wasn't kind of they didn't have any kind of roadmap or anything. They just wandered through it and just kind of put together. Um, well, you know, both of their careers are very interesting. Yeah. You know, she's very left field, obviously, and he was, yeah. you know, very controversial and his, um, you know, his. But um, well, converted. Let's say that goes far wow. to say that. Interesting. And I thought, I've, I have to investigate her work now. I have to yeah. listen, and I should listen with such a different ear. And, you know, because she went from drawing to becoming a poet, yeah. and then she was encouraged maybe to, you know, Put sit down some musicians and work yeah. through those songs. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So okay. I've, I felt a real empathy with um, uh, what she had to say. I felt like, you know, when she, I was reading this, and I was thinking, God, that's, that's about me. It's extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, that's fascinating. Okay, I, I will pick that up. I've been on the fence about but you it say for she's years. Won some, they've won, she's won some awards. Oh, yeah, big time. Oh, yeah. Well-deserved. Yeah, yeah. That's it was a, quite a phenomenon. Because um, the last time I saw her, she was doing, she went to the uh, Nobel Prize mm-hmm. presentation, taking, you know, Bob Dylan's medal or whatever he was going to get, because yeah. he wouldn't appear. Right. So she went along and she sang, um, I think she sang, sang Hard Rain. Mm. And um, it was a shambles. <laughs> really? <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was a shambles, but it was fantastic because you know she just broke down halfway. She yeah. said, oh, "I've got that wrong. We got to start again." And I just thought this is amazing. This is just oh. just utterly brilliant. You know, <laughs> Where she's doing this presentation for the Nobel Prize panel or whatever, and Bob Dylan's not there. He's off somewhere <laughs> on tour and can't be bothered to be there. And she's. Kind of trying to put all this material together, which just was, it was a mess, but it was just brilliant. It was so oh, memorable. A brilliant mess. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'm going to have to go YouTube that. That's fascinating. 
Um, good. All right. I want to ask you about, I want to, I want to ask you about a quote that I read that you said that, at the, and I don't know if this was, if you said this at the time that you created, that you were basically a pop star, we'll say those, you know, three or four years there, or if this is something you said much later, but that you were interested in records as disposable products. And I wondered if you could, and first of all, I wanted to clarify whether you meant the actual physical record that you hold in your hand as a disposable product. Like we buy them, we listen to them a few times, we like the song, then when we're done, we chuck it. Or are you talking about just the disposable nature of pop music, like your song or millions of others, where they have their moment and then you move on and some of them continue to live and some don't? Clarify for me what you meant, because I have a feeling you wouldn't want your records to be viewed as disposable but maybe you did maybe you don't care i wasn't thinking in terms of in vinyl terms but i mean obviously now that's kind of been turned on its head now because vinyl is so sought after always people are wanting to you know release their material on vinyl again and it's become quite a big movement here actually in europe uk uh so i wasn't really actually thinking about the material itself although i have to say that the, the kind of tactile nature of albums has completely gone out the window i hated mm. cds i never liked cds at all mm. and now it's just a matter of kind of streaming all this uh, information it's not you know music is just something that comes down the line it's not something that we experience in quite the same way at all it was something you know that were you know the the, the album was like yeah obviously it's like the difference between having a, a book and um you know, looking at it um, on your your Amazon tablet or whatever, right, right. Uh, the, the whole tactile feeling of having an album, having a collection of records, and that you know, putting it on a player is is um, an experience which people are beginning again to sort of revisit because something's kind of got miss got gone missing in the the whole experience. I don't know. It's not. Mm. I'm not being sentimental or nostalgic, but there is. You know, you you put books on the shelf. Uh, but now um, you don't even have to put them on the shelf. You can put it on yeah. the server. So yeah. you know, that's, that's it. So your whole yeah. house can become empty now. You don't yeah. need books, paintings, you have to project and right. the music coming down the line. But um, it, I wasn't alluding to actually the, the, the material piece. I was thinking about, you know, pop music was something which was disposable, just like, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of the not something that we necessarily need to be attached to. Um, it was okay, a commercial commodity or whatever, which was on the radio for a while, then it would lose its interest and on to the next or whatever. But it didn't have any, um, you know, in, in the essence of, if you like, uh, folk music, mm-hmm. uh, which was is the narrative of, you know, the the working people or whatever, you know, if you go Mm -hmm. to Eastern Europe and you can hear the most glorious folk music, which will never get onto where very little of it gets onto into the popular domain at all. But it's, um, people are just every week, every, they get together and they sing and they sing these amazing, this fantastic music or they play this incredible music, but it's not in, it's not in popular culture. It's not, doesn't have that disposable quality. Yeah. It's not, you know, pop music in a in a sense has a kind of it, it's very kind of um, tied into whatever's fashionable at the time. It has a sort of it's disposable. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's it has its own inbuilt obsolescence. Why do people go back and listen to the same songs again? I mean, 
there are great songs and there are not so great songs and there are songs that don't really deserve to be listened to more than once. But I, I think certain songs or whatever just capture moments in time and yeah. people's imagination and it kind of takes them back where they they would maybe want to be and want to reflect on again, you know. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't know about you, but do you, are you listening to a lot of popular music or do you listen to other kinds of music? Um, I listen to a little bit of everything. I will admit yeah. I'm, I'm 45 and I did my, I've done my very best throughout my life to stay current on what's out there. I have yeah. like a lot of people when they reach a certain age started to, uh, I can't keep up anymore. I find that the new music that comes out that I'm interested in are from bands I'm already familiar with, you know, like you yeah. or like some other band from the seventies or eighties that I grew up on. And I've been doing this podcast for about three and a half years. And, um, all of my, not all, but most of my free music listening time is spent researching people like you to have for the show. You know, if I want to talk to Robin Scott, yeah. I got to know more than just pop music. I got to listen to everything Robin Scott's ever done. And so that eats up a lot of my time. I'm not, you know, I don't have time to listen to the new latest rock group because I've got to do this other stuff, you know. Mm. But I mean, but the fact that we might, there are some stations which just their, their programming is deliberately focused on a particular demographic uh, and they yeah. will play songs from a, a particular mm-hmm. era in order mm-hmm. to increase the, the listener, um, the audience. Mm-hmm. You know, and it sort of obviously revolves around the commercial interests of the radio station or whatever. But what is it that we're listening to? Is it something that is still popular or is not so popular or is it historical or is it classical or what is mm. it's very strange. But I mean, you know, what is popular music? Well, I think we're probably listening to a feeling and or a memory. I mean, it's, you know, it, whether it's new or old, you're looking for something you can connect with and identify with. And either you're identifying with it in the present or you're identifying with it as a memory from your past. And you want Mm. to feel the feelings associated with that, either the feelings that the song is meant for you to feel or the feelings associated with when you loved it before. That's what I would assume anyway. Do you not listen to a lot of pop music? Well, no, I think that's part of that. That is partly the the truth. But also, for example, when I listen back to... Hendrix, for example, mm-hmm. I'm still just really not blown away because, uh, you know, I saw Hendrix and I was there on that occasion and it was a great feeling and, you know, I want to bring that back. I just, I'm still um, in awe mm. of him as a an artist, a creator, or, you know, a guy that, you know, sort of could pick up an axe yeah. and just do what he did. And, and there are have been other guitarists since then who are, you know, quite extraordinary but he seems to have retained that um, particular essence and it's still fortunately Mm. it was recorded and we can still hear it again and I don't I think it's kind of unsurpassed in a way and I don't think it has anything to do with me being nostalgic or sentimental I still Mm. think it's an extraordinary track or it's an extraordinary performance I suppose those uh, there, there are examples where you know they're just timeless. Yeah, you know? and I suppose yeah. there are you know, there are some huh. Dylan tracks or whatever that just have that quality, which just just it's just timeless and just yeah. goes on. I don't think that's necessarily to do with being popular or not popular. I just think it's just a sort of thread of 
musical development or creative yeah. um, thinking. Maybe. You know, it's interesting you say this. This is kind of a natural transition anyway, because when I think about, you know, talk, going back to the disposable nature of pop music, and, and I feel like, I think I mentioned this earlier, that that's in some ways what you were exploring with your first three albums, uh, in a way. And uh, so, first of all, you, you know, you have, you've got this disposable idea in mind, and yet you've created one of the most enduring pop hits of all time. Secondly, it's ironic. It is ironic. That's what I'm saying. And then to tie that in. I was being quite cynical at the time. (laughs) Well, who knew, I guess, right? Um, But then last year, you put out your first album in eons called, of all things, Emotional DNA. Emotional being the opposite of something clinical or disposable. Well, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe emotions are disposable. But anyway, you you and this album, this new album of yours with songs like Chains uh, is pop friendly. I would stake my reputation on it. You want love, but you're running from it. You're living in the shadow of your history. This seems to be the most pop friend. This is like you writing great pop tunes. There seems to be less less experimentation or less, you know, clinical coldness than there had been before. Uh, do I have any of this That's right? right? Okay, then why did you feel like now was the time to make an album as warm and pop friendly as Emotional DNA, you being who you are? Okay, because I was thinking about, you know, I mean, we, we all have sort of different you know, strings to our bow, as it were, and can't pull them all at once. But I was thinking about <clears throat> when I first had um, any ambition at all to make a, you know, I don't know, make any form of impression with music was when I put out my first album. I seem so lying. 
was I, yeah, I was a singer-songwriter. But, uh, you know, because I had the simple sort of, I had the tools, you know, that, you know, it was very uh, easy to get hold of a guitar and try and write songs. And I was listening to a lot of uh, singer-songwriters at the time. And uh, I knew that the essence of that was basically, you know, to try and put together a song, mm-hmm. you know, music and lyrics. That's all it was. And I was, I think when I got to the point when I was, um, uh, the material was becoming closer to my own personal narrative in terms of where I was in my life with emotional DNA was exactly that. I was trying to drill into my own, I thought this is, this territory is kind of unfamiliar. I'm looking, you know, quite deeply into my own sort of, uh, my own kind of journey and, uh, with all the challenges that, um, you know, come with that. And I just thought I would explore that because it, it felt like a, a new territory in a way. And I was thinking, can I actually just lose all the, the technological trappings of the studio, just step away from that and just sit down with the guitar again, just mm-hmm. see if I can kind of um, interpret what's happening to me as an individual, what's been happening and where I'm going, where am I, where are my feelings lying? You know, what, what is this emotion about? Can I express that? Have I got the, the skill to do it? And I suppose that, that to me at that point just felt this is quite a big challenge. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's, it's probably more challenging for me as a person to, to contemplate that than, you know, go back into the studio and use whatever sort of means there are available. And there's lots of, kind of technological um, pieces of kit, which very quickly you can put together a track on your iPhone. You know, it's mm-hmm. just not, it's not difficult. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of kind of reaching out with um, your own sort of, I suppose, your, your own personal sort of uh, um, form of expression, you know, um, mm. it's quite a difficult thing to do. So I like the challenge. So okay. yeah, and I suppose, yeah, what's happened is that, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. They, they're bound to reflect everybody's everybody yeah. else's effort to do the same thing. Okay. <laughs> so it's, there's nothing in there sort of in terms of production, which is particularly uh, challenging or, or groundbreaking. Cause I'm kind of going backwards in time to look at just my own expertise as a songwriter. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, in hindsight, when I, when I kind of, I mean, I have been sort of, um, doing some live work and uh, what I do, I do tend now to strip everything right back. And the production that you hear on that album is probably um, in some ways I feel that perhaps it's overproduced. It's like kind of, there's too much going on. Um, But the temptation is so great because one minute, you know, I was sitting in the chair as I'm the singer songwriter. Next minute I'm the producer wearing the hat. What Give him something to do, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah. And he got a bit carried away some of the time. So, uh-huh. And then, uh, you know, I was thinking, well, how am I going to present this to the world anyway? Because, like, you know, I, I don't have a band at this point, or I can go out and do sort of, I can do it with backing tracks or whatever. So I went out busking, you know, taking mm-hmm. the backing tracks and running. Mm-hmm. I tried that. You thought, were busking? What's the point of that? You, yeah, like yeah, yeah. the grown up Robin Scott, <laughs> is out there, who, you know, created pop music, is out there busking? 
Yeah, yeah. I just uh, <laughs> <laughs> I used to do that. You see, so, well, so can I do used this as to well? is one thing. Try. Everyone used to do that in their twenties <laughs> in the subway. No one does it. And some rock idol doesn't do that today, but you did. That's great. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, I just suddenly start, I've, more recently I've started to see that the, the space in between the sounds and the music is just so precious in itself. I mean, it sounds a little pretentious that, but what I'm saying is that um, you can, it's like, um, how can I say, it's more, more is less mm-hmm. or less is more, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's playing with that dynamic and you can use when you're playing in a live scenario and you've just got the means to project the musical part, you know, on your, your guitar and you've got your voice and you've got to find the balance between the two, the expression, bring out, you know, the, mm-hmm. the harmony that's, you know, implied with the melody, complementing with the, you know, complementing with the guitar. It's quite a subtle game. Yeah. And it's, um, uh, it's, it's just a really interesting area to explore. I mean, you know, classical, um, artists or classical musicians, uh, they're all, aware of all this stuff but i mean you know i've sort of the way that i've kind of my relationship with music is a voyage of discovery I've, i was never mm-hmm. trained academically i didn't i don't have the kind of expertise that um you know those that kind of spend time in the conservatoires or yeah. university or colleges and go through the training and they have their mentors you know the piano teachers i never had any of that stuff i'm like the rest of you know the uh, the generation that was just groping through the, um, uh, by playing by ear, basically. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I do that. But I I do feel now when I listen to um, classical players, I feel on one level I really appreciate the the, the technical expertise, uh, the balance, the careful balance between that and the expression that they're trying, the emotion they're trying to bring into the music as well. And it's um it's a really sort of delicate territory which kind of become quite interesting and i noticed that in fact this <clears throat> the current generation now which is um when i say current generation, i'm thinking of my son's generation okay because he's uh he's producing and he's also writing his own songs okay. and um he's he's got yeah he's got all those kind of technical skills you know in terms of producing and you know we're using samples and all the rest of it. he can he's got his head around all of that but just recently he's just begun to tap into this kind of minimalistic kind of approach to delivering a performance and it's quite it's it's become really quite current actually and i think that people are from a listening point of view are quite intrigued by um performers who tend to look for the space Mm -hmm. look for you know um it's just not not throwing you everything at once, not giving yeah. you yeah. not information overload with just lots of sound, you know, lots of drums, bass, and all the rest of it. Uh, it's it's quite interesting, and that you know is is something which has kind of been intriguing me. If, you know, just, I'm okay. talking about just recently, in the last yeah. few months, huh. and I have been listen, noting that I'm I'm tending to listen to quite a lot of classical music because you know, I'm just yeah. curious how those dynamics are working in that particular sort of territory. Okay. I like listening to, um, you know, solo players, whether it's kind of, uh, you know, it was Paco de Lucia playing flamenco or whether it's Segovia yeah. or whether it's, 
I don't know, but I'm talking, I'm thinking about whether, you know, it could be pianists or, sure. I mean, solo artists. Okay. In that particular. Huh. Well, Lang Lang, you know. Yes, yes. Okay. Maybe your next album will be, your next art project, we should say, would be some kind of classical music, classical album then, if that's your new, what's getting you off. Maybe that's it. Which, yeah, it was, it was interesting because um, I've, um, um, I got married recently. Oh, and, wow. Congrats. <laughs> for the first time in my life. Really? And, um, okay. Yeah. And, and uh, at the wedding, we had a, a wedding at a very small chapel in the Welsh mountains, the Black Mountains. And it had three pews in the chapel, and we had there were six of us, including the vicar. And I I played one of my songs with the vicar, and we developed this relationship because the most incredible keyboard player with the mm. most you know fantastic ear, and he keeps inviting me to go and join him and do some more work together. He's um, you know obviously a great organist, but he's also a great piano player as well. And I'm sort of looking for the kind of the crossover, the link, yeah. how I could possibly do that. But well, uh, I've also met up with another bunch of guys who are called the uh, Black Mountains Bluegrass Players, because I love bluegrass music. So <laughs> anything gosh. can happen. Wow. <laughs> or else I can go and fiddle with my, you know, you know, yeah. sort of all the sort of electronic power paraphernalia as well. Wow. To, to well, see. okay. <laughs> That's amazing. So, yeah. um, I wanted to make sure that we played a little bit of your latest single in here, House of Cards. Once upon a time, you pretend to be blind, but now there's no excuse. You won't see me on CCTV, because I'm a recluse. Watching me, watching you. Oh, what a wonderful view. Mountains touching the sky. And the wind is rushing by Oh, goodness sake It only takes One hand to shake Make no mistake This house of cards Could crash down to the ground Every little creature is a major feature In the grand scheme of things Bees and their honey, man and his money, the blackbird sings. We've reached the borderline, we're running out of time. And I'm curious what a legacy art, when a legacy artist like yourself releases a new single, what does that even mean? Does it even get played on the radio somewhere? What are the expectations? Uh, well, to be honest, if you want to get airplay, you, you've got to basically like any label you've got to sort of invest in radio promotion radio pluggers or whatever uh, to get it past their their panel for their playlists mm -hmm. um but this is something that um for example on spotify they have their kind of their own curators that put together playlists mm -hmm. and you can actually put it up for that mm -hmm. and um it's you know i think you know, if you can get sort of on Playlist, I mean, basically what it is, is a kind of viral um, experience where, you know, obviously you, you get further and further with the exposure because people sort of share it with different playlists. Um, I mean, that's a completely different media, but um, radio airplay, I mean, it's it still is significant. But I mean, when I put that out into the, um, yeah, releasing that, I'm just mm -hmm. thinking in terms of streaming and digital mm -hmm. distribution. I wasn't really thinking of airplay. Okay. 
I'm just curious what a but if it gets picked up, great. It's, oh, good. You know, if it gets picked up, yeah. I was just curious what the hopes and expectations of a legacy artist like yourself at this stage, putting out their first new music in years that would fit on a pop music station. Does it actually make its way onto the pop music station, or you know, does it? Uh, are you going to play shows? I don't even know. Have you ever been much of a lar- of a live act? I don't believe you have. Uh, no, that's correct. No, okay. That's correct. I mean, more recently I've been sort of playing live, but um, that's really, you know, with a view to kind of just getting off on the experience. Mm. Um, but yeah, getting playing live is probably the best way to get exposure and to sort of yeah. compound the interest. Huh. Well, good luck. I mean, I, I, that's why I was <laughs> eager to talk to you because I, I, not only does everyone love pop music, the original song, but I don't know if they know that there's a new M album out there that they can check out. And um, and I think it's really great. I think Emotional DNA is a great album. So I thought it'd be fun for people to know about it. Um, well, that, that's yeah, good to hear. Yeah, sure. Sure. Because <laughs> um, it matters so much, you know, what John thinks about. Uh, anyway, I wanted to ask you uh, about the effect, if there was any, of when you 2 used pop music so prominently in the Pop Mart tour. I saw that concert, I think that was, what, 96, 97, something like that? That 97, that's right, yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm in a giant football stadium and the lights go out and uh, this hermaphrodite-looking dancer in a sequiny silver dress starts dancing on the largest screen I've ever seen. And it's dancing to your song, and uh, that happens in every football stadium around the world. What what kind of what happens there? Do they are you suddenly a a bigger deal? Are you getting calls that you weren't getting before? Are you getting paid for that? Even I have no idea how that works. Uh, yeah, that's right. One gets because it's it's when it's um, on the set list like that. You get a percentage of the well, the way it works is that on a pro rata basis, all the the tunes that an act plays out, um, it's amounts to, I think it's basically 14% of the gate, mm. which is shared out amongst the different tunes. Um, that was an interesting situation then actually, because originally, um, yeah, there was uh, quite a generous flow of, of royalties on that sure. basis. Um, but I think what they tried to do was to, um, somehow kind of mitigate the, the expense by suggesting that it was incidental music, like, you know, the music around the stadium in the mm-hmm. burger bar or whatever, mm-hmm. rather than it being singles. But it was obviously, you know, it played a, a, yeah. an eminent part opening their, their, well, it was opening their show, wasn't it? It did. Where yeah. did you see it? I saw it in Rice Stadium in Salt Lake City, Utah. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. I, I saw it, um, yeah, I saw it in Giant Stadium. Hmm. In New York. Okay. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Wow. And, um, yeah, it was very, uh, yeah, it was, it was really flattering. It was interesting, but, um, the, the remixes were, um, uh, interesting too. There were a couple of remixes, which I thought were very strong. Mm -hmm. Um, and then Bono did his own version of it as well, which was, it was okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, there have been many, many versions of it. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Well, that must have raised your profile immensely. I mean, you know, I don't, most of the people I knew, that was their first, if they were my age, because I was only six years old in 1979. Yeah, I mean, that's most right. Of, most of the people my age, 
that was their first exposure to pop music and to M and to you yes. and what you're doing, you know? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Huh. I was well, just always spe- curious. Speaking of, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the current album is strictly speaking, you know, it's a, if you like, it's a solo project under my name, Robin Scott. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really kind of, I didn't have it in mind as a kind of re, um, a re-entry M project. Mm. It was just something, you know, it was much more sort of kind of, uh, yeah, as I explained to okay. you when we last spoke, it was more of a sort of kind of um, a personal um, statement from coming from me. Okay. You know, clarify for us what the difference is. And I don't, you know, what, what did M, where did that come from? What was that meant to uh, signify? Okay. Um, well, in a way, it was my perspective on what was happening um, in a more secular way. It was like, um, you know, it was more of an objective sort of take on what was happening around me rather than, mm. uh, by contrast, what I was saying, you know, uh, emotional DNA is a sort of kind of subjective view of where I am in my own personal journey. Mm. And it's, you know, there is a distinct difference between the sort of kind of narrative of the kind of the M era, if you like, and my own sort of personal, Mm. um, yeah. So they're different. You view M as one thing and Robin Scott as something different. Oh, definitely. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. It's the alter ego, if you like. Yeah. Yeah. How did you, what does M stand for? What did, where did that come from? To be honest, it kind of came out of the blue, but it just fitted. It was a kind of intuitive um, decision at the time. I was doing, putting together the sleeve for the single. I was in Paris and I was in Jean-Baptiste Mondino. Do you, mm-hmm. do you know that name? I do. Absolutely. I was in his, in his studio and we were working together. And I looked out the window and I just saw the, the metro sign, the yellow M, mm-hmm. which sort of hovered over all the sort of kind of metro stations mm-hmm. in Paris. And I just kind of seized that as a kind of pseudonym, which sort of it just had okay. that kind of uh, feel that I was sort of looking for at that moment. But cool. uh, lots of people had their own different sort of interpretation of what it stood for, what it meant. And it was open to interpretation. And I kind of enjoyed that. Okay. That's a lot sexier story than if it had been like the Golden Arches of McDonald's or something like that. You right. Know? So that's good. That's very, uh, very uh, exotic of you. I like that. Okay. Um, well, now, okay. One thing I wanted to ask you about too is your transition. Well, I don't know if it's transition, but your expansion, I guess, into kind of more world music. Um, when you did the music with Ryuchi, is that how you say it? Sakamoto? Yuichi Sakamoto. Yuichi. Okay.
And uh, so you work with him. He's avant-garde. He's not pop music. And then you go off and do the jive shikisha. Is that right? Shive shikisha. Yes. Shikisha. Shikisha. Okay. Yes. But I love both those albums, by the way. Yeah, they were both kind of um, opportunities that uh, I kind of stumbled on. I mean, Yuichi, I I heard from... um, uh, Originally, he was in Yellow Magic Orchestra. Mm -hmm. And there was one album, I think it was called B2 something or other. And um, I got... um, You know, they communicated with me and said, you know, at the time when they were putting that album together, they... um, They'd enjoyed uh, very much listening to um, the official secrets. They mm. felt, you know, had some kind of um, influence on, on where they were going. And we just struck up a sort of dialogue. And then Yuichi was doing a solo um, project. And he said, you know, would you like to um, be involved and produce? And I said, yeah, I will. So I joined him in Tokyo and uh, I brought to it, you know, sort of my own kind of musical sort of vocabulary my sort of background and interests and i suggested we brought in adrian blue and Hmm. one or two other things but i was working through a translator it was quite a difficult album to do actually in Hmm. that respect because yuichi at that point he wasn't speaking any english at all and um, this was kind of pre merry christmas mr lawrence and Hmm. pre the period when he worked with japan so it was the Hmm. first time that he'd worked with any westerners uh musically but it was um yeah it was good and there were some tracks which i took back to the uk and then remixed and put some vocals on myself and you know just it was more of a collaboration at an artistic level rather than me kind of Mm -hmm. producing him Mm -hmm. um but that came about it was you know it was it was an accident it wasn't by design really and Mm -hmm. And likewise with Shakisha, I was um, in a club in, in London and these three girls from, uh, well, they were from South Africa and uh, they um, had this indigenous folk music and they were doing uh, singing and dancing with their, um, you know, within a club environment. And it just mm. it just struck me as being quite extraordinary, you know, because I hadn't at that point, this was, I think this was probably eight. Two something like that, mm-hmm. and I hadn't heard any, um, you know, vocalizer, you know, vocal harmonies yeah. like that before. 
And um, we got together and we started to de- to de- developing a kind of collaborative um, relationship where, you know, they would bring their ideas and I would bring mine and I was producing and sort of, so we were writing together and we just built up um, an album's worth of material and half of it was recorded here in the UK and then I took it across to, because initially it was, there was a lot of, a lot of programmed elements and um, I think at that stage we laid down some vocals and then I took Hmm. that material, which was quite basic still, out to Kenya where I've found musicians who um, I really wanted to bring that live element in and that's where that came from. I spent okay. um, about three three weeks in Kenya, in Nairobi. Because um, I'd been there before and I knew that there was, it was full of fantastic players. Um, the only problem is most of the players didn't, they didn't really own many instruments. And so mm. we had to kind of, there was no, no, you know, no end of great musicians, but yeah. they just didn't have the, um, the means. So we, we found the instruments and got them in the studio and, um, Huh. It, was, it was a really enjoyable album to make. I love that album. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, this album preceded albums like Paul Simon's Graceland and Malcolm McLaren's Duck Rock and these other more prominent or pro, uh, popular albums that sort of pushed uh, African music into more of like a mass consciousness. Yours came before that, although I don't think it was released until after those. But it's just as good. I love that album. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Once again, I'm glad. I'm. I'm sure you. I'm sure you care deeply how I how I feel about uh, some of your music. It's great. Um, you know, your music is really hard to find. Does that ever bother you? It's not like it's all readily available on iTunes or Spotify or anything like that. Some of it is, but not uh, a lot well, of it. That's interesting that you should say that. That you're having trouble finding it because I mean that's something that you know uh, I could um, take up with Spotify. Yeah. I, I like that platform best of all. I Me prefer too. it to Apple Music or whatever. I think it's, um, I think it's a much better platform. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. When I look up Robin Scott M, nothing comes up. When I look up Robin Scott, their emotional DNA, life class, and um, a couple of remixes come up. Of course, if you search by just Try- M. That's... Yeah, if you if you try with the al- the al- the name of the album, you, yeah, I did you know, that you before Robin too. Scott, Official Secrets. That should bring it up. Um, let's see, New York, Paris. We'll start with that. New York, London, Paris. Or yeah, I'm sorry. Yep. Munich. Yeah. New York, London. No, maybe this is just in America. Maybe oh, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, maybe in. A... You know, I had a that's interesting because i had an email that came through the site the other day and somebody was saying they were having some a problem finding a particular 12 inch or something and i thought that was in north america yeah that's really interesting yeah it's not here and then i wonder so because i know on the album cover there's like uh there's it's london and then like a dot pair you know london or New York yeah. dot London dot Paris. So I wonder if there's some, you know, you have to type with certain characters, but yeah, I've never been able to find all your music on Spotify and I, maybe that's a North American thing. I don't know. Something you could look okay. into. If you well, want. I'll, I'll look into that. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. I'd love it to be there. Um, yeah. 
Okay, so uh, I want to ask you. These are, these are going to seem kind of random, but we didn't we didn't get too. I don't always go too deep into people's origin stories, just because I feel like that's the easiest information to Google. If you wanted to go to someone's, you know, Wikipedia page, you could find out a lot about where they grew up and their early bands and stuff like that. But yeah. um, we should establish that you went to art school with Malcolm McLaren. Uh, and yeah. everything I read implies that you two were sort of buddy buddy, or at least, um, yeah. you know, compa- were you friendly at the time? Were you uh, friendly oh, enough? God, yeah, we're, we're, oh, you were. Okay. Well, it was. There was a period when, yeah, I first I'm, first I met Malcolm in the early stages of the same course, and we developed a relationship, kind of sparring partners, if you like, and then um, he. Um, I got introduced to Vivian Westwood because, you know, she became his girlfriend. And then we actually, for a period, I think it was probably a little less than a year, we actually lived together in the same house. And then he started um, his enterprise, you know, and mm-hmm. um, he started up a shop and I was involved in that for a while. But, you know, I was more drawn to actually, um, you know, producing and mm-hmm. making music. So um, that was, yeah, the relationship was, um, yeah, we shared a lot of time together. Good. You um, you started a record label, and I believe one of your first releases was Adam Ant's debut album, Dirk Wears White Socks. Is that correct? That's true, yeah. That, that must have, first of all, I'm a giant Adam Ant fan. You have to tell me what it was like hearing or meeting him or what drove you to do that other than maybe your friendship with Malcolm? Was that sort of at the heart of this or were you also a big Adamant believer? No, what happened was that um, Adam actually just approached me, came out of the blue and said that he had an album that he recorded and he wanted to release it. At that point, I was kind of running a label out, you know, from the bedroom. And he just showed up one day and said, um, look, you know, could you, could you release this for us? So that was, the, uh, that was a story on that one. It was just like, I mean, he sort of, I suppose, sourced, uh, sourced me and he probably had heard a little bit about my experiences elsewhere. And, okay. You know, it was just the, um, yeah, it was just, I was in the circle. Hmm. Were you, uh, what, what's he like? What, what were your, were you friendly with him? Did you ever hang out or anything like that? Um, not so much. Um, okay. Because at that point when I, you know, when he came onto the label, I actually wound down my interest in that particular mm-hmm. enterprise, the, the label itself, because I was kind of more interested in getting back in the studio. And that was the period when I was recording those first singles, including pop music. Okay. And I was, yeah, that was kind of a big distraction from um, mm. running a label. But there were a couple of guys that I was also involved with on the label and they just followed it through. Okay. Did when you did you know Malcolm at the time when he would have sort of masterminded the Sex Pistols? Did you did he ever talk to you about um, you know I found this band or I'm creating this scene or I've sensed them? I mean, he had a sense like you did with the with pop music that something was changing, something was on the horizon, and an artistic statement needed to be made to telepath that change. Did he ever communicate that with you? Oh, definitely. We really? We were from the same hymn sheet. Yeah, I was kind of um, at the uh, sort of epicenter of all of that. And uh, it was an interesting period. I didn't get, uh, I mean, he, you know, he had, he came to mind. He already had a name for a band. And I remember him telling me over a coffee, he had this <clears throat> name. And I that was interesting. I kind of took that on board. And then he um 
started to piece together the lineup and he brought um, John Lydon and Steve Jones over to my flat and, you know, was asking about, you know, rehearsal space because basically he knew that I had sort of more involvement with music um, and uh, facilities and the sort of kind of perhaps I could facilitate or give him some advice. And so that was, that was what was happening. So, you know, I was kind of sharing um, what I felt would be the right um, way to sort of take what he was doing. So, um, and then, yeah, once he'd established, um, the band got established, I went on the last tour together with him and Julian Temple, the um, filmmaker that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I worked with when I was producing The Slits. Do you remember that band? I do. I, that's um, another band, thing on yeah. my list, yeah, to ask you about. Yeah, because um, I took them to Paris with Julian Temple and we recorded and uh, filmed them there. And um, so, yeah, so I was kind of part of that sort of whole scene but in a kind mm-hmm. of objective way. I sort of felt like an observer, really. I was kind of developing my own sort of plot, um, which was a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I was kind of familiar with all the characters, you know, okay. um, that uh, were sort of on the um, on the carousel at that time. Okay. Is Johnny John Lydon, is he as... Is- crazy and uh, outspoken and angry as he seems to be. Were you, are you a fan of punk? Uh, well, yeah, I was, okay. yeah, I, was, I, I, I wasn't making punk music, but I was there right. and okay. I, I enjoyed what was happening. So I was kind of familiar with the characters as I say, and you know, the pistols, the damned and various other sure. punk bands and uh, John Lydon. I liked him enormously. I think he's a great guy. Hmm. And he, um, yeah, along with um, other artists at the time, or John Letts, the filmmaker, and Christy yeah. Hine, all these people. I mean, we were all sort of there. melting pot. Oh my gosh, that's we could do two hours on that, Robin. Just me, because <laughs> that's that you're talking about. Just the sweetest of sweet spots musically for me is that whole, you know, British scene of the late '70s, early in, into the '80s, with all those different bands just vying for attention. I love all that stuff. Um, do you That's have interesting? Yeah. What um, I think I cut so you when, off when you said were you going to say something? Well, I was going to say when. Uh, okay, so you were. I'm just trying to think when you in your sort of sensitive developing years. That was the early <laughs> 90s, is that right? Well, uh, so I'm 45, and um, okay. So I was, you know, I was okay. mostly into pop music for most of my life. You know, radio pop music, Michael Jackson and that kind of stuff. And um, we moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, which sounds like Podunkville, and it kind of is a little bit. But um, we moved to Salt Lake City, Utah in 1983. And believe it or not, Salt Lake City has a very vibrant, still to this day, sort of alternative rock scene. There were a couple of uh, designated alternative radio stations. A lot of those 80s bands... um, to this day come through Salt Lake City because they know they have a big audience there. And so that started to kind of open my mind to the Smiths and to the Specials and to the English Beat and to Echo and the Bunnymen and the Cure and Depeche Mode and all that kind of stuff, you know? And so when when you love one of those bands as much as I do, you start to love all of them and you go deeper and deeper into the roots of where it all came from. And um, so this was in the 80s. This would have been in the 80s. Yeah. 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 
Um, some of those bands I was late to, you know, I, I didn't, you know, bands like, a, like the Smiths, they were almost done by the time I would have come around to them. Um, so none of this happened very much in real time, but it, uh, yeah, they made up my formative years for sure. Right. Yeah. So were, were you, a, are you a musician? No, I'm not. I'm not a musician. Um, so what I'm, were you doing during that period? Going to school like every other teenage kid, yeah. you know, 13, 14 years old. Right. Um, right. Yeah. With a, with a view to being in the industry or what? Well, I, um, and maybe this is, it's interesting you ask. I had, I had plans, I think, of sort of becoming a journalist. Um, in fact, I, right. I got my degree in print journalism in college and I had planned to, I don't know, work for a, a newspaper or Rolling Stone magazine or something where I was going to yeah. make this kind of the thing you and I are doing right now, my business. But we all know, you know, print journalism doesn't really exist as much anymore, not in the same way that it did. And I wasn't getting right. or offering, being offered the kind of jobs doing the kind of stuff I wanted to do. And so I went and became a regular working stiff like everybody else. But that was what the plan. Um, I still work in, so I work for a software company. So that's been your, your bread and butter, but your, your yeah. love has obviously been yep. music and journalism. Yeah, that's it. And um, so I've been doing that for years now. And it's, you know, it's like anyone else with a job. It pays the bills and I've got three little kids and a wife. And yes. But my heart of hearts, I wish I was a rock journalist or something. So I thought I started this podcast three and a half years ago thinking I wondered if people would talk to me. Hopefully I can ask interesting enough questions and I can uh, talk to, I want to talk to people who we don't hear from very often. You know, I was, I was thinking about this yesterday after we talked, I have read interviews with you. I've never once in my life seen an interview with you or heard an interview with you. And so I thought, well, right. everybody knows pop music, but what do they know? Robin Scott, does anyone really, you know, have we ever heard his speaking voice? You know what I mean? So I just thought you would be an interesting <laughs> subject. And I, you know, I've done over 200 of these and it's, uh, I seek out people like you, people we all love that we don't hear from often enough. So how, how has it done being a, a good experience? Has it worked yeah. well, the podcasting of the last three years? Yeah, it's, um, it's going really well. Um, it's uh, slow but steady growth. I, I, um, I get a lot of the guests that I want. I, you know, you know, we mentioned Bono. I'm not necessarily going after Bono, but I, I, um, I, th I feel like I have really good conversations with people, and I think, I think our podcast has a good reputation. It's always difficult, as you probably know, putting out emotional DNA. It's hard letting the right people know that you've got this thing out there that they might like. You know. Like, hey, I, That's I, right. I'm M. I remember me. I had, I, well, guess what? I got emotional uh -huh. DNA and I, I think you'd like it. And it's, it's extremely difficult to get that message in front of the right people. And I, I face that too. But, um, you know, little by little, hundreds of people find us every day and think what we do is a good thing. So, so how effective is, are the podcasts, if you like, as a means of promoting artists and the new releases because you know what every artist mm -hmm. wants to do or may or may not be um feel comfortable doing interviews but they are prepared to do it because they see it as ways of you know getting exposure yeah so how how useful is your particular sort of platform in to do that yeah i um well i i'll talk generally i do think that podcasts are becoming 
um, kind of the new, the next thing, you know? I mean, there are thousands of them out there now, too many probably. And a lot of them are honestly yeah. some guy in his in his bedroom and, you know, him and like his 10 friends listen to this podcast. But there are yeah. higher profile, um, they're becoming really effective platforms to connect with the people who would want to hear with, from you most, you know? No one listens to my right. podcast that doesn't, deeply love music because that's what I'm going after. You have to really care, you know, to, and thankfully right. I've got a few thousand people that do, you know, so, um, yes. hopefully learning that emotional DNA out th is out there is going to, Oh, I, I trust John. I've always liked pop music. I didn't know that this, that he had new stuff. I got to go check this out. You know, hopefully that's the right. connection that you're making. So, um, yeah, I don't know that doing every podcast in the world is worth your time, but picking some that are micro-targeting the people you would want to connect with, I think are well worth your time. Yeah. Yes, yes. But if if you wanted to kind of sort of reach further, how can you do it in your position? Uh, that's can the, you do that? I don't know. That's the golden question. I um, I don't. I'm a, I'm not a very good self promoter and I'm, I'm, I didn't grow up in this, you know, I wasn't heavily connected. I just do my thing. And thankfully people come to me, not, I don't mean guests right. come to me, but I mean, listeners find us, you know, I don't know what that next step is. I wish I did. I think about it all day, every day, you know? Yes. Have you thought about working in radio as such, like, you know, on air, going on air yeah. with radio? I have. I, um, did you I don't know how I would do that. Someone would have, you know, I, two things. Number one, I would need to have the right connection. And I don't know if I do that or not. I, I don't know. The other thing too is there's a quality, you can probably relate to this, Robin. There's a quality of life uh, question here because yeah. I got, if I wanted to leave everything and go work for a radio station, I would probably make a quarter, if that, of what, I make right. now right. and I might right. work really crazy hours. And, um, right. so it's difficult. It's difficult as you probably know to, um, you mm. know, find that mm. balance. Mm. But I'm just thinking, I mean, you sound very articulate and I can imagine oh, that in the context of radio, um, it, that, that voice is very much sought after. I would hope in so. I don't view. know. Yeah. I mean, if I were, if I were honest about the pipe dream of all of this, it would be that some XM or serious radio station or whatever would ask me to do what I do, but do it for them, you know, and we, we get higher quality microphones and we play all the music that the person wants, because we're going to edit in some of the songs that we talk about in here. But, um, right. you know, if it could go up a level in quality and, and up, a million levels in audience, that would be great. But I don't know how you do that. I'm just, you know, I, I, um, you pro they probably go to somebody like, I mean, maybe you see this too, who has already built up, you know, millions of Twitter followers and millions of Facebook right, followers. Right. And then they see that, oh, that guy's already doing it. I'm going to go mooch off what he's already doing, you know? And, um, right. I, you know, I have some of that, but not, probably not to the, gigantic numbers that they're they're looking for i don't know it's an ongoing question do, do you use social media to oh yeah um mm -hmm. yes, you do yeah yeah and so you hope that basically yeah I was so say, can people go through to your podcast via facebook or mm -hmm. 
Twitter or whatever. Yeah, I um, yeah, we have a Facebook page and um, and uh, and Twitter. We're on Twitter as well. So, like for instance, in your case, we put episodes out every Tuesday, and so when this comes out, I will tag you on Facebook. And I don't know how active you are on there, but. Maybe you would share it. I'm and, not particularly active, I have to say. I have right. a Facebook account, but I'm not particularly act, active. What What do you think is the most effective oh, boy. Um, social media platform for you know artists or musicians at the moment? Yeah. I mean, it was Facebook at one point, wasn't it? You know, it was yeah. MySpace at one point. Right. It's, is it now Instagram or is it <laughs> what is it? That Instagram, I think, is what younger generations are doing. You know, like uh, yeah. teenagers today are not on Facebook. And I don't know that they're even right. on Twitter. They're on Instagram. Right. Um, right. Is that the most effective way? I don't know. I know, I do know, and that's why this podcast is called The Hustle, because it takes a lot of networking to um, get your links. You know, if you use SoundCloud, if you posted remixes, if you continued to remix pop music or whatever, and you posted those remixes to SoundCloud, and then you posted those links on uh, I don't know, Q Magazine's website or something like that, or classic pop mags. I'm thinking of British magazines that might be interested yeah. in what you're doing. Um, and then they pick it up and then they retweet it and then their followers find you. And then they, you know, hopefully a small percentage of those people stick around and they follow you thusly. And then they are more connected and know every time you do something. And it's, uh, yes. boy, it's hard. And that's uh, that's the hardest part of doing all of this is getting you, in front of the right people. Do you use YouTube, for example? Do you have a YouTube channel? I do not. Uh, that is like the no. next step, and I because I I see a lot of people on there, and they are they have a lot more uh, views on YouTube than they seem to have like on iTunes, which is where we we yes. are. And so that yes. would be the next step. I try to. I'm not technically savvy. I keep saying we because. I do this with a friend of mine and he, do, I do the yes. interviews and he does all the production work. And, um, right. that's kind of the next step is for us to post these on YouTube. I, you know, I'm really, I, I like doing these and I think they're, I'm really proud of the product that we put out there. I feel strongly like these are great little, um, you know, definitive statements of great artists that, uh, that we don't get to hear from often enough. And so I want them to live on. And if I were able to get them on YouTube so people could find them, you know, for years and years, that would totally be worth it, you know? So, yes, yes, yes. What about online magazines? Do they feature at all in, you know, in this context, you know, um, with, with journalistically speaking? Yes, they do. And that is something that I wish I knew how to penetrate. Um, you know, a lot of times, especially now, I'll give you an example. There's a, I don't know if you guys have it over there, but there's a really popular magazine over here called Entertainment Weekly. And I've noticed the last couple of years, they will count down like the top 10 podcasts and they'll do the top 10, you know, true crime podcasts or top 10 right. comic com comedy podcasts, top 10 music podcasts. And, um, right. but I'm guessing you have to know someone or you have to have a publicist or you have to have somebody there fighting for you, you know, Hey, entertainment yeah. weekly, you need to hear the hustle. And, um, that comes from a groundswell of, you know, interest, which I, I will say too. another thing is our numbers go up and down depending on the guests. Some people elicit, you know, thousands and thousands of downloads. Some people are less interesting. It really just depends on, you know, right. 
who uh, whose story that or artist someone thinks is worth their time. And what if one puts in a search or a search, you know, mm-hmm. in Google for the hustle, what comes up? Maybe because I'm on my own website a lot, that's what would come up. But if you went into like iTunes and you typed in the hustle podcast or whatever, it would come right up. Um, All right. I think I've sent you the link. I'll do it again. You probably know a lot of the okay. people I've had on here, actually, because. Right. Um, yeah, there it is. Well, I'd, we're the I'd first uh, thing to pop up. Uh, that's good. It would be interesting to listen to some of those. Yeah. I have to say, I haven't done that so far. I know I, it's, uh, it's kind of, um, you know, it's a new thing and, uh, it's people's lives are busy and there's a million different, um, strands of entertainment out there or, or information vying for our attention these days. And, uh, kind of information overload. it sure <laughs> is. It sure is. Yeah. So, um, so where are you based geographically? For some reason, I was thinking you were in Canada, but you're not. Oh no, I'm in Denver, Colorado. Oh, are you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I grew up in Salt Lake City right. and I've moved around, but we've lived in Denver the last uh, almost 15 years. Yeah. It's a nice part of the world, isn't it? It's beautiful. Yeah. We love it here. Yeah. 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 So the Grand Canyon must be somewhere near you too. Um, Grand Canyon is is uh, in Arizona. So that's oh, okay. um, that's nearby. If you've ever heard of Vail, Colorado or Aspen, Colorado. Aspen. Yeah. 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 Uh, Aspen's about four hours away. Um, Boulder, Colorado is about a half hour yeah. away. I work there. And, right. uh, so where is Asp- Aspen where they have the film festival? Um, that's Telluride, which is near Aspen. I believe I've never been to Telluride, right. but I believe they're near each okay. other. It's all, I mean, right. basically really, really high end, uh, ski air resort towns for rich people who want to ski and get away right. basically. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, those are really interesting questions. <laughs> no one's ever asked. No one ever asks me anything. <laughs> Thank you, Robin. <laughs> no, it's just interesting to hear, you know, yeah. where, where this voice is coming from, you know, your, yeah. your background is, is fascinating. Obviously you've, you've done a lot of research and as I say, you know, you, you, you sound like uh, an educated journalist. Oh, well, thank and you. It's, um, it's, um, it's always, you know, I mean, you get so many mm-hmm. people that are in that sort of playing that role. Um, I mean, you know, I have, I did do, uh, I did quite a few interviews um, last year. I did have a PR company involved for a while, um, but I don't know the, the caliber of the, um, the journalists or the people that were playing you know, the role of interviewer. I mean, it was mostly done online, but they weren't, didn't strike me as being particularly intelligent or well-researched. And, you know, it's just, it's not that interesting to have a conversation when you know that people haven't really done the research. They just got their kind of stock questions and they're, it's just like the same old stuff. You know, they've probably looked at Wikipedia and, you know, just got a, got a quick sort of, uh, preview of who they're going to be talking to but um it never really sort of doesn't necessarily develop into anything interesting unless there's somebody that's kind of really um driven by their interest in in the medium yeah that's i try my very best to elevate the conversation beyond just 
regurgitating mm. what's on someone's Wikipedia page. Mm. I mean, that those are good bones. That's a good launch place, you know, but hopefully you can yeah. go a little deeper from there and, and learn about some other things. And um, I, I don't understand that. I don't know how people can do interviews with people where they haven't, they're not, you know, at least a fan or, or having, I, I mean, I try to listen to every shred of music that, my guest has ever put out there and a lot of yours i've mm. known for years some of it like i wasn't intimately familiar with all the sakamoto stuff although i knew it was out there i've heard it once or twice you know but um so i just i try my best to be as educated as i can possibly be before mm. i come into these things mm. i feel like what, i owe that to what you. Con- <laughs> okay <laughs> you know you. what sure. what contemporary um music do you like what do you listen to? Oh, now? It's harder. It's getting harder and harder to l- keep up on new music. There, um, there, there are three bands that I really, really like and um, that are fairly new. One of them is a is you know how like a lot of bands. It's almost like '80s synth pop is sort of really popular again. There are a lot of bands doing that sort of sound now, and there's one yeah. that I really like called Saint Lucia. And they remind me of, and maybe this is good, maybe in your mind, maybe it's not, I don't know, but they remind me a little bit of like Scritti Politti or Go West okay, or those kinds yeah. of, you know, and I have a real, so- I love that stuff. I have a real soft spot for those. And um, yeah. so they're a band I really like. There's a Canadian band called the Besnard Lakes that do this almost really, it's a little bit proggy, but it's very epic. Every song just sounds gigantic, you know, and. Um, very sweeping and I really like that and then there's another uh, American band called Wussy (laughs) that is um, (laughs) uh, yeah they sound a little bit like um, maybe what art like REM they're sort of that sort of jangly um, alternative rock with some southern influences into it Um, in fact the lead singer had done some work with with REM members back in the nineties. So yeah, those are three of the big ones that I'm into as far as pop music goes. Right. Right. Are you interested in other genres? I mean, do you like country music or I do or unless, uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, I listen to everything. Um, and I try to find the good in just about anything. I don't listen to a lot of modern country or hip hop. I do appreciate older stuff like Johnny Cash or, uh, older right. hip hop like Public Enemy or whatever you know the stuff I grew up on. Um, I'm not as right. up to speed on that kind of stuff, but I do like the classics for sure. Right. What about you? Uh, you uh, probably what, sound like a lot of you. It sounds like you like you listen to a lot of more classical at this point, probably. Well, do you know, I, <laughs> whenever I tune into the radio, if I'm driving or I'm just at home, I do tend to listen to classical music. Mm-hmm. And I just find that the it's in some ways, uh, well, it depends. It's not all great to, to my mm-hmm. ear and it's not all challenging, not all, you know, <coughs> uh, I, mean, I like, I've always liked the kind of experimental edge of, of um, uh, classical music. Not, I'm not talking about, um, yeah, I mean, I, I like sort of to have my ear flattered with harmony to a certain extent, but mm-hmm. I like, I like the more sort of challenging sort of repertoire in classical mm-hmm. music. I'm, very open to that and i think in some ways i've felt that um uh if you like sort of mainstream popular music has it it lacks a certain richness Mm. um that you know one can find in the classical repertoire Mm. i mean certainly when you know i was 
talking to you yesterday. I mean, I'm listening quite often to pianists and um, uh, classical guitarists or whatever, and it's just extraordinary the, the amount of um, yeah, color and richness yeah. that uh, one finds in that. Which it's you know, if you switch on the radio and listen to, we have radio stations. We have Radio One, radio, mm-hmm. these, these national stations now. Radio One is basically your hardcore pop young audience which and there's sometimes there is there is material in there which sounds very striking and, mm-hmm. and quite progressive and you've got some great producers or writers or whatever collaborations going on and you have radio 2 that's meant for i suppose the slightly more upper demographic probably your mm-hmm. age group and then radio 3 well it just goes in some ways it cuts right across the demographic because there's some late night programming on radio mm-hmm. 3 which is one particular program called late night junction and it just goes from one end of the spectrum to the other and i i mean that you know you can hear yeah. maybe a sort of piece of um uh thrash metal and then you mm-hmm. could hear something from uh you know i don't know early 20th century composers with stravinsky or or prokofiev or whatever so it's mm-hmm. it's a really interesting mix, and they've adopted this expression mix the mixtape so they mix, right. you know, literally they go from, you know, leap across the sort of musical spectrum. And that's really quite interesting. Good. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm very much up for that. Good. So, um, I think I that tune into that station. Good. I think that reflects these current times. I think for years, you know, labels and radio stations wanted to micro target everyone into that. Everyone likes only classic rock or only country or whatever, but if we look at if everyone looks at their own iTunes library, it's full of everything. You know, it's got a little bit of everything yeah. in there, and um, that was kind of the magic of early MTV too. Was that you would have, you know, a '80s hair metal band next to a R&B ballad next to a synth pop thing, and they there was no differentiation. It was just a little bit of everything. You know, and that's one of the things I try to do on my podcast too is cover all the genres and all decades and a little bit of everything. Just because uh, I think that's what we like. I think we all like a little bit of everything. Yeah. No one likes one thing. Yeah. Well, I think there is a trend to sort of kind of opening up um, the classical uh, repertoire. Going back to you, going full circle in a way, I mean, you've probably got to consider yourself one of the lucky ones because you can continue to make a living off of this great song of yours at a time when no one makes money doing anything anymore. You know what I mean? Other than playing live. I... um I saw Yes last week in concert. It was John Anderson, Rick Wakeman, and Trevor Wayman. Yeah. Yeah. And um, boy, I love those guys. And I was with my friend and we were trying to decide how old John Anderson was. And he's 74 years old. And on the one hand, I'm so grateful that I finally, after all these years, got to see John Anderson sing live. But I got to believe that John Anderson would want nothing more than to just sit back on his farm somewhere and relax. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) And he doesn't get to, the poor guy. (laughs) So, you know, there's ex-wives and children and lawyers and bad business deals and bad managers. And, oh, it's so, you made it out. Okay. And you're one of the few, you know? (laughs) Well, it's interesting because I've also got this new perspective now because I mentioned my son last night yeah. uh, when we were talking before, who is, um, yeah, he's, in a sense, he's, yeah, really, he is a chip off the old block, so to speak. He has 
similar, he shares the same enthusiasm for, um, uh, yeah, you know, the, I don't know, the expertise which he's developed, I, I can identify with very easily. And I can, we, we talk a lot and we talk about, you know, the, the possibilities that are open to him. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it is a very different environment commercially. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had, there was one track he put up, he collaborated with a friend and he got a, had a million streams on Spotify. Mm. And I think out of that, I think he got in, in royalty terms, he maybe got three or $4,000. Now, if he had a million sales mm-hmm. on a single, um, you know, as it was when in the vinyl days, I mean, you know, that, that would have been a lot of money. Yeah. It's now yeah. it's really a sort of, it's a volume proposition. You've got to be sort of, mm-hmm. you've got to have so many streams to have any significant royalties coming because yeah. it's just minuscule. It is. You know, each stream is like, you know, point, I don't know, zero, one cent yeah. or something. You know, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. And it seems like for a lot of them, it's got to lead to something else. You can't just do the streaming. The streaming, you know, someone has to find you on Spotify, but then go to your concert and then buy your T-shirt and sign up for your newsletter and then follow you. You know what I mean? It's It can't just be one thing. It, it doesn't end no. with listening to a song. If you want to capitalize and make money on this to make a career, you've got to incite mm. them or provoke them to do 20 other things with their fandom, you know? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And it's it's been a the whole thing has been flipped on its head in terms of income streams um, because once upon a time, one from the record label, you would have an advance and you would have tour support, and basically the the touring or the performing live was to sell the albums, mm-hmm. and that's where the you know that was that was where the real revenues were mm-hmm. from coming from album sales or single sure. sales or whatever. Now it's, it's, it's the other way around. It's, you know, you give away as, you know, Prince so kindly did, you know, a few years back, mm-hmm. he just gave away all the CDs. He saw the light coming. He saw mm-hmm. what was going to happen. He started giving away his music in order to enhance, you know, his live performance attendance. Yeah. That was a loss, wasn't it? Come yeah, it sure was. <laughs> sure was. There's some, yeah. there's some really major, um, stellar artists who have just kind of dropped off their perch recently. No it's just kidding. Incredible. It's been a rough couple of years for all of that. Um, yeah. uh, speaking of which, I wanted to ask you specifically about Bowie. Bowie is, David Bowie is my number one. And um, I, I know you two at least knew each other. In fact, the I believe the urban legend is that he supplied hand claps in the Moonlight and Muzak song. Is that right? <laughs> Yeah. 
Well, he, we uh, first, <clears throat> our paths crossed um, back in those early days when I said I was kind of entering into the, the game as a singer-songwriter. And he was in, you know, the same sort of genre, really. I don't think he had, he had found his feet at that time, but yeah. we were performing in, um, there was a small club in London, and w- along with Ralph McTell. Do you know that name? No, I don't believe Does that. Does that ring a Well, he's, okay, so he's, um, he's, um, I suppose you would call him a folk artist, really, okay. but he was on the, on the same bill, bill that mm. evening with myself and, and David Bowie. And um, <clears throat> I think... Um, I was singing a song about the sun. Mm-hmm. The Hubei was singing about a song about Christmas trees mm-hmm. or something. It alluded to that. I think it was a Bee Gees mm-hmm. song. And Ralph McTell was singing about the streets of London. Uh-huh. Anyway, so it was, it was quite an interesting evening. And afterwards, um, um, David said that he was starting up a club, an, an arts laboratory in South London. And would I come down and play there? And I said, well, yeah, okay. So I started frequenting that um, called the, it was the, um, the Arts Lab. Mm. which um, was um, yeah, in South London. And that's where, you know, he started to, David, that is, you know, build up a bit of a following and, and give, create a you know, platform for other artists to come in, a little bit like an open mic scenario. And um, so, yeah, I, I knew him quite well in that period. And then he started to, he, there was, um, when he, yeah, space audit, he sure. got, started to get that off the ground. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so what was happening is in different sort of intervals throughout his sort of early career, we were sort of crossing paths. And then when he, he moved out to Switzerland, when I was recording out there in, in Montreux, um, because I had met up with, um, um, I'm just trying to think of a second name now, Roger and Queen, what's his name? Yeah, Roger Taylor. Name? Taylor. Roger Taylor. Yeah. Yeah. I met him in a hotel in, um, I think it was Munich cause I was out there doing a TV show and, we met at breakfast and I said, look, do you know anywhere where I could record, which was outside the UK because there were certain advantages in doing mm-hmm. that, you know, from a tax, kind of, tax reasons. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, you should come to our studio in Montreux. And I said, okay, well, I'll come, I'll come and visit. So, and that's where in the town of Montreux, that's where David came to live because he was, I don't know. I think he was, he was pretty depressed at that time. And I think that he'd had these kind of um, uncomfortable sort of threatening sort of um, his, his son was receiving, well, mm. not his, his son was receiving, but I don't know. There was some, some, he felt that the atmosphere was too threatening being in London mm. and he had moved out to Montreux to stay there for a while. So, um, and Dave Richards, who was the engineer that was, um, unfortunately, he's not with us anymore either. Yeah. But anyway, he used to run the studio, which was owned by Queen. And David would step in and do a bit of recording there every now and then because he was in town. And every now and then when, you know, he was interested in whoever was there, he would just come down and hang out for a bit. And he did that. He came down and he hung out with us when we mm. were recording there. And that was, that was, and we just fooled around for a bit. I think we probably drank a bit too much. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that was the moment when, you know, he, we were sort of kind of fooling around over the desk and then, you know, next thing we were sort of, yeah, that was where the hang clap thing came from. Okay. But um, we had, <laughs> it was true, but I mean, it was yeah. all a bit silly to be sure, honest. Sure, sure. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I liked him. And I remember having, after we had a, found a quiet moment um, to have a conversation about, you know, what was going on. I think he was, 
I mean, you know, he had really covered a lot of serious ground by mm-hmm. then, but he was, I think he was somewhat, something of a hiatus. He was slightly in limbo. He couldn't mm-hmm. really extend himself or what it was um, because he was, he seemed to be quite amazed at the global implications of having mm-hmm. a track taking off around the world because that's why he, when he's, you know, commented on that with pop music, how do you do yeah. that? And I said, <laughs> I don't really know. But yeah, anyway, we have having quite an in-depth conversation. I remember he got, he got very emotional actually. And I remember really? at one point he was, um, he must've been quite, he must've been a sort of a bit of a depression because, you know, he was oh. quite tearful. And, um, I remember him and then leaving sort of a little bit sort of abruptly, he sort of had to kind of close himself down. And then I didn't see him for, um, two or three years. Then there was, um, he was doing some, yeah, big, um, stadium concerts around the time mm. of when Let's Dance took off. Sure. And the EMI, uh, I had a friend EMI, and he said, "Why don't you come down and see?" You know, David Performance was in. I think it was one of the bigger venues in the East End of London. So it was kind of every now and then we just crossed each other's yeah. paths, and um, so I, you know, kind of watched um, his career obviously with interest, and he went to sort of. Uh, yeah, I mean, he had his highs and lows, yeah. as it were. And those more recent years, um, and also there was a connection between uh, myself and Tony Visconti because mm. my daughter, who's also a musician, she's a keyboard player and a songwriter herself. Oh, wow. She became involved in Tony Visconti's band, Holy Holy. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. Of, you know oh, Holy Holy? I do know what Holy yeah, Holy okay. is, yeah. Yeah, right. So, you know, they were touring that album that David never toured. So there was yeah. that connection again. So, uh, oh. but I didn't know anything about what was happening, um, you know, obviously backstage, so to speak. And, uh, but um, Tony Visconti did. He was one of the few that knew what was, um, yeah. you know, the, the challenging path that um, sure. David was going down. Yeah. Huh. So, um, so quite sort of kind of, close to all of that. And then yeah. of course, you know, that wasn't long after Malcolm's demise either. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was, um, I hadn't seen him for a while. I was in contact with his son and, uh, yeah. and then I heard that he was in trouble and going out to Switzerland to try and get fixed and everything. And he, uh, you know, so yeah. it's been a bit, a bit of a battlefield. I bet. And, um, I bet. And I, I suppose from my point of view, I mean, that album, Emotional DNA, when uh-huh. I said, you know, life is challenging for me, I mean, I, I was challenged with prostate cancer, like 10 you years were? ago. You were? Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh. that was, that's really when I began to sort of get off my ass and realize, you know, obviously, you know, this is, yeah. <laughs> I have something to say. I, I had know, no like idea. It was kind of, no, that's right. So that's where, you know, a lot of that came from, the, the sort of, and I was wanting to somehow let that, surface and find a way that I could kind of, you know, wow. I wanted to, yeah, it was a kind of cathartic experience. So that's why it was so far away from the, the you know, the sort of, um, yeah. uh, you know, the guy that was in control of everything, you know, Mr. Right. M who was yeah. sort of, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it was about, um, and I just thought that here is a new frontier is a new journey is the journey within. And yeah. I just thought this is really something I've never addressed before. Huh. And how can I do it? I can't do it by sort of messing around with, you know, sequences and logic audio and all that stuff. Right. I'll just sit down and go back to the song and see if I can, 
you know, wow. try and master that again, you know, but, um, are you okay? Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've basically, I, I'm, you know, one of the lucky ones. I, Good. This is, I'm 10 years down the line. I'm sort of, you know, with, I don't know how familiar you are with what goes on, but you know, it's, it's, it's down to your PSA levels you yeah. know, to see what's going on. But I mean, it's, <clears throat> that was, um, certainly very, uh, how shall I say, um, kind of yeah, eye opening. I, I grew a lot. <laughs> yeah. I grew a lot in the, in those uh, two or three years when that, I was dealing with that and yeah. learned a lot about sort of the male psyche and how we tend to sort of kind of live in denial and don't kind of share information, you know, in, in, mm-hmm. in this respect and which is really important because, you know, it's, um, it's something that, uh, women, for example, they're much more prepared to, um, to share information on, on, you know, a personal level, but men tend yeah. to sort of kind of go into denial. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's really important that, you know, mm-hmm. you can actually, uh, if you're going to get it anywhere, that's the best place to get it in the prostate because it is contained there. And the good news is that there are, there are ways of dealing with it if it's mm-hmm. in the early stages. Good. But if you, if it, if it drifts and goes, you know, yeah. if it gets out, into the rest of the system, then you're in deep trouble. I mean, and there's a lot of guys that are kind yeah. of um, not addressing it. Right. So anyway, there was all that wow. stuff going on, and I thought, okay, so let's see. If, yeah, let's make some be, music about it. I must have something to say about yeah. all of this. Sure. So, um, you mentioned so yesterday. The, um, yeah, I was going to ask you. You mentioned yesterday about getting married recently. Did are the two? Are the two connected? Maybe that's a stretch, but I don't know if, you know, seeing your own mortality. No, they are in a way. Okay. No, there is, because my, um, uh, well, my former partner, who's now my wife, um, we we actually went through, it wasn't just myself that kind of went through this. I mean, she had issues with her back. She had had spinal mm-hmm. fusion. Then she'd lost her father to cancer. Then her mother got cancer. And oh, there was... Boy. And her, her son was having struggling with an uh, an unusual condition. He had to have virtually a new hip built. I mean, I'm just <laughs> yeah. they, for three or four years. It was like a fucking minefield. It was unbelievable. <laughs> wow. And we were just sort of kind of plowing through it, sort yeah. of uh, and dealing with it. Um, but it was, you know, as in all these kind of, you know, you turn adversity into advantage, and yeah. somehow you kind of. Um, it strengthens your, your your purpose, and so I thought, well, how can I convert this back into something which I'm kind of familiar with, making music, and see um, see what comes out. I won't let you stumble. I'll catch you when you fall. In the heart of this jungle, you will hear my. Disappear and leave no trace Escape 
I was alluding to was uh, we all have our own personal you know I've kind of been sort of taking on board how different we are as individuals as we grow up and I'm thinking in particular my children how they've become adults in their own right and there are certain things that you know they develop their own belief systems and mm-hmm. they kind of develop their own sort of personalities and some of which I'm comfortable with some of which I'm not but it's yeah. It's all to down. It's all down to where we come from. Is it nature or is it nurture? And so I was thinking, emotional DNA being that sort of uh, that print that we all kind of share, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's so different, you know, across the spectrum for each and every one of us. So that was um, that was the meaning of the title. Okay. And I've kind of scratched the surface with a few songs. Yeah. I don't know how successful it is in that sense. But, well, um, I think it's great. Um, I'm, I hope people can find it. I'm going to, I always play, I'll tell you, but my favorite song in the album is Wilderness. And, um, oh, right. So, yeah. So oh, you I, like that track? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one's probably well, my favorite. Oh, that's great. Cause yeah. like, you know, cause I do hear from different people, uh, different tracks become their favorite. Like for example, um, Telling my wife she doesn't like that track at all. Ah, really? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's the way it is, you know. Sure. Yeah. That's the beauty yeah. of it. Yeah. I remember, uh, you know, uh, Bridget, who was singing with me on Pop Music, she used to hate it. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I can't dance on this track at all. I don't know what people see in it. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> that's great. Wow. Well, uh, so I've got a million other things I could talk to you about, Robin, but I, um, I'll, I, you've been so gracious with your time and I just want to tell you that I love you a lot and I'm really grateful that you gave me, you know, a sliver of time to talk with you and share your music with people and hear your story. Cause, uh, um, I really respect you as an artist first and foremost. I, oh, like thank I was you. Saying, yeah. Like I was saying thank yesterday, you. I think you're probably an artist first and a musician second. And, um, and I respect that. And so I just wanted to, you know, share your story with, with people. So thanks for doing that. Yeah. Well, that's, well, that's great. I mean, it's always difficult to be totally open and honest, you know, it's, yeah. that's always, uh, um, that's, it's always a struggle to do that. And I, I, I struggled to do it with that album, to be honest. And I remember mm-hmm. playing it to one of my closest friends and he said, yeah, but you know what, Robin, you got to dig deeper. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, shit, that's not what I hear, wanted to hear from you, John. I wanted to, you know, wanted to hear. It's great. Yeah, know? of course. <laughs> so I thought, fuck, you know, all this, yeah. all this work. And he's telling me I got to dig deeper. Well, maybe he's right, you know. Yeah. So I keep digging. Okay. Well, it works for <laughs> but listen, me. Keep, yeah, keep yeah. in touch. One other question yes, sorry, for you. John. Are you going to, are you, um, I mean, are you going to play out at all? Are you going to, I'm sure you never come to the States, but are you, can you put your name I'd up on a marquee? The this, oh, I'm sure you, yeah, yeah we'd I'd, love for I'd, you to be I don't here. know how to organize that, but I'd love to come and play in the States. I'd love to do that, which is great. Yeah. They should put yeah. you on one of, you know, they do all these uh, rewind festivals and nostalgia. I've done that here in the UK, but you know, they, they want you to just bloody pop music. I don't want to just do, and if I could I do, know. if I can do other, you know, can, um, yeah. current song, current material as well. It's fine. I did one festival here, 
and they said the, the option is for you. This is the same for all the artists. You do, uh, you know, do one of your hit songs, but you must you know, then do a cover of somebody else. I did, mm-hmm. uh, I did give Peace a Chance. John Lennon oh, did Peace a Chance. Good move. And pop music, which was okay. And yeah. the audience were fantastic. They're great. Sure. They're there for the event. They're not really going to go out and rush out and buy any records or do any more streaming. Yeah. It's just, in fact, it's it's your age group for the most part. Yeah, I believe it. And um, so supportive. And I, I really loved it. But I thought, then they said, oh, well, can you come up and do one Scotland, one here and one there? Yeah. I just really didn't want to do that. You know, I just really? didn't want to become a, uh, well, you know, just being a legacy artist doesn't yeah. really appeal to me. Why yeah. can't I, you know, just do what I kind of feel I should be doing? Sure. And I don't care how small the audience is. Yeah. Uh, if they're really into it, that's great. Hmm. And so, I mean, I wouldn't mind doing small clubs or whatever. Yeah. I can do that. I can play just acoustic guitar or I can play with a couple of players, you know, rhythm section or anything. I guess if your expectations are, you know, in check, you could probably swing that. It's interesting you mentioned that the the legacy artist on this was a big week for concerts for me. So Thursday night I went and saw Midjur and Paul Young at a oh, joint, did you? Yeah, jointly here in Denver at this little club it's a little theater. Um there were probably two hundred people there, maybe. 150, yeah. 200 Crikey. people there. And then the next, Amazing. yeah, the next night I saw Killing Joke. Do you remember Killing Joke? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they're on their 40th anniversary tour. I saw them at the exact same place and there were probably four or 500 people there. It was packed. And then last night I went to a giant outdoor amphitheater and I saw yes. Tom Tom Bailey from the Thompson Twins, uh, oh, wow. the B-52s and Culture Club. And that was a giant, Blimey. you know, uh, spectacle and i just you mentioning this i i saw you know in three nights a whole spectrum of legacy artists at various stages in their career you know two of them tore together to to in hopes of sort of building getting more of an audience one of them's out there celebrating 40 years and the other one are you know can attract large audiences and giant amphitheaters it's different for everybody yeah but so the ones that were just uh, when you say there's an audience of 200 what sort of lineup do they have? I mean, that's, you know, to put on a show with any yeah. number of musicians is an expensive affair. Yeah. So how did that, how did that work? If they only had an audience of 200, what, how, what, were they playing acoustic or were they playing, no. playing with a band? It was Midge. <clears throat> Midge has, I've seen Midge four or five times now, and he's done this a couple of times where it's like an electric tour. So it's, it's, you know, we think of him with synthesizers because of Ultravox, but this was him really cutting loose on the electric guitar um, now he comes out and the band that supports him also comes out and then supports Paul Young. So there's, some, they cut down on some expenses there. Okay. Um, right. Paul did bring his own guitar player, a guy named Jamie, who I think, I don't, I mean, I say this, I don't know if you even know Paul Young or personally or whatever, but I think this guy's no, played with no. him forever. So, um, yeah, that, and, and normally when I see Midge, it's in this little theater that's more of like a supper club and there's. You know, one to two hundred people there. I saw uh, Howard Jones there recently. Um, so it's a nice place, and it sort of gives the impression of sort of a more of a posh night out. You know, you're sitting at a table yes, with yes. drinks and all that kind of stuff. But this was like a dingier, yes. dirtier kind of club club that I saw them in the other night. Yes. Um, I mean, you know, I I would be happy to play. <clears throat> 
completely acoustically. I'd love to have a band, but if you can't afford it, you mm-hmm. don't have it. But um, you yeah. can change the dynamics, as I was saying to you when we were talking before. You, know, you can get very, if you kind of know how to control the dy- dynamics between yourself and acoustic guitar, it can be amazing. Mm-hmm. Or, okay, bring in a loop station as well if you wish. But I, j- I just, you know, if I do anything live, I would tailor it to obviously. Yeah. situation in terms of what you know i could realistically afford mm-hmm. so i can at least break even you know yeah um but um you know it's it's an attractive idea it's just yeah. like you know if you can play to an audience of 100 people that's a good start mm-hmm. 200 300 that's great too sure. Sure. but um yeah, I mean, something that I would consider. Maybe you should become a promoter, John. <laughs> <laughs> My wife tells me that, actually. What a, does she? Uh, yeah, She's she right. does. I, um, it's you saying this, so I don't, you don't know. I, I'll share one other little thing since you've been very kind to ask me questions. One of the logical extensions of what I feel like I'm doing here is that I would love to put on my own kind of hustle fest or something like that, you know, have like four or five of of our guests come out and each one you mentioned, because a lot of them say what you say, you know, is we've, yeah, we, we, we've done the legacy thing, but now we've got some new music and if we could showcase some of that a little bit more. And so maybe we have a night where I have four of our old guests on and each one plays for 30 to 40 minutes. And and hopefully that's enough time to, it's not you're not going to be able to play the entire emotional DNA album, but maybe you could play two or three tracks and two or three yes. older tracks. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm a big believer in storytelling. That's what I was telling you yesterday. Yeah. And so I think if you can I think what really is special nowadays is when you do talk to legacy artists, the the currency that they're bringing to these shows is not just their songs, it's their experiences. And that's right. James Taylor's good at that. Yes. And like I was saying when I saw Howard Jones a few months. I've seen Howard Jones nine or 10 times. I love him. But this was just him and a piano telling the stories behind all of his songs. It was beautiful. And it was, he's so engaging and funny. And I think if you can add that layer to this, it's even better. And so that I don't, you know, but again, going back to what I said, do I need millions and millions of listeners in order to make that happen? I don't know. I don't, I'm new to all of this. I'm figuring it out as I go, you know, you've probably got a ready made audience already. Yeah. That would, that would, um, you know, probably respond to that. Your, your wife's probably right. I, um, maybe you I, should give it some serious thought. I, uh, I, <laughs> I am starting to, yeah. Like if I pick, you know, I've had a few people on from the, uh, live in Vegas like what if we had in, yes. what if we had this show in Vegas and we had four or five people and they each played thirty to forty minutes and told some yeah. stories and signed some merch and you know it doesn't uh, who knows and we called it sounds the like a hu- good idea to me yeah that's the hu- call it call it what the hustle uh, hustle fest you know because this yeah. is called the hustle <laughs> we'll call it hustle fest and or so I don't know I'm just making this stuff up but. That would yeah, be my or dream. The hustle yeah. soiree. Yes, the hustle soiree. soiree. <laughs> That's for our swankier, <laughs> our swankier, more posh listeners and artists. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's That'd the hope. Good. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we'll see. I don't know. I, uh, I gotta. You know, I don't know. I don't know how to do any of this. I'm just figuring it out as I go. Well, if you want to bounce some ideas, you want to develop the theme, give me a shout. I would love that. I would love that a lot. Mm. So. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure you'd find that there were other artists that would like to work towards that besides myself. I think so too. I mean, uh, 
and be you know i'd love to do something like that in the uk because that's i love all the uk music i used to live there too and i've had several uk artists on my show probably half of them so um, oh, you were living here, were you? When were I, you living here? When I right after my I graduated from high school in 1991, yeah. my family moved yeah. to Cambridge, and um, oh, I, I was only there for about a year. But we, um, uh, I we still, you know, I go back. Here. I was there last year, and um, we still keep in touch and friends and and stuff like that. Yeah. So. Well, do you remember that song on the album? Um, don't miss this opportunity. There's no more. There's nothing more precious than time. Yeah. What on one of your albums or on someone else's? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. It's, it's on the emotional DNA. Well, I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to think what the bloody song's called. Hang on a minute. So, well, you mentioned best of both. Yeah, me too. Peace of mind. Line for you, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Don't miss this opportunity. There's nothing oh, more precious than time. <laughs> you're so right. You are so right. Um, I got to figure this out, don't I? It would. Um, well. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully, I can let figure. Let me know. I will. I will. I talked. I was. Uh, I interviewed uh, Nick Hayward um, a while see, ago. Th- sorry, sorry to interrupt you because there, yeah. there is a gap. In the market, you see the rewind thing. The rewind thing is too rigid. Mm. It's too nostalgic. It's too. Uh, it's too. How can I say? Um, I don't know what the expression is, but it's not. It doesn't give artists that opportunity no. to speak for themselves now, as well as mm-hmm. okay, reflect on the past, which is all very nice. I've but talked to some people, now? and they say yeah. it's like I've talked to people who do it, and they say it's basically like karaoke. You know, it's like yeah. you come out and I go to the, yeah. all those shows. I love those shows, you know, but mm. I know what you mean. Mm. Yes. If I could mm. give it, give a stage for people to open up a little bit more. As I was saying, I talked to Nick Hayward. Uh, it's been almost about a year ago now. I don't know. I love him. And he says the same thing. Like, I, I would just love to do my own kind of show, you know, play some new stuff. I don't want to play Love Plus One over it. And those same three songs that the nostalgia circuit wants, exactly. you know. Although you know, it's yeah. like I mean, I love I, I love playing acoustic uh, acoustic version of pop music. I mean, I can do that. I can play with it all kinds of different ways. Ooh, that'd be interesting. But you know, I I don't want to sort of you know, I like to surprise people with that. Yeah. You know, if I drop it in a set, they don't know it's coming. Right. And then suddenly they twig. What? <laughs> oh. <laughs> that, that, that's him. That's you know, the, that I know stuff. that song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. It's funny. 
There you have it, Robin Scott. I hope that was okay. I felt, you know, I feel weird about it, but at the end of the day, I thought it would be interesting for all of you to just to hear a very genuine, honest conversation between two guys trying to figure some things out. And I, you know, I feel like we almost kind of became friends there a little bit in our own way. And we really are going to try and figure out this concert thing. In fact, if any of you have any kind of instructions or insight or uh, experience in that kind of thing, I have nothing. But I'm really eager to try and figure it out. You've heard me mention on here before my desire to have these kinds of shows where we, you know, get a bunch of former guests together and they do some storytelling live. Uh, my thinking is maybe you don't know any other songs besides Robin except pop music. But if he can play those other songs and tell you a really interesting story about them that include other people, other artists you may know, like the hand claps by Bowie on Muzak in the Moonlight, you might appreciate it more. I think there's value there. Anyway, hope you appreciate it. And either way, let me know. Uh, maybe send me a message privately, you know, just out of respect if it's negative. But send me a note. Uh, at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod and then of course on Facebook you can like our page and you can send us a message on there. So thank you Robin for doing that. I'm really glad we did it. Now, I want to close it out with another song of his called Modern Man. This was actually his first single as M. It came out before pop music. It's such a good song. Next week we're doing another producer episode and it is literally one of the most legendary and successful producers in rock history. I'm not lying. Uh, now, before that, in the early 80s, he was in a fairly successful kind of new wave band. And so we spend about half the time talking about that and the other half trying to encapsulate the rest of his career. I'm sure you're going to want to hear this, I promise. And then a huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man, my right-hand man, for putting everything together. Thanks, buddy, for all you do. We will talk to you guys next Tuesday.